Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts. Ordinary people's extraordinary stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Charles. Charles is going to tell us all about his life. So, Charles... You're in the room. How you doing, Tim? Very good. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So, Charles, if you can tell me when and where you were born, and if you can describe to me what it was like where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received. Well, I was born in uh, how everyone outside of Worcester calls it Worcester, Massachusetts. They don't, they don't say it like uh, we do. Yeah, they say it differently. Well, Worcester. Yeah, we say Worcester, but a lot of people yeah. say Worcester. Worcester, yeah. <laughs> but we yeah. had the same with the sauce. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Worcester sauce. And yep. they call it Wor- Worcester sauce. Right. What are you yep. all about? <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's weird. But um, yeah. I was born in 72, which makes me 50 years old now. And, um, Congratulations. Thank you, I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what it was like when I was growing up, let's see. Um, I started going to school here in Worcester. I did um, kindergarten and I think first grade here. And then... My father lost everything that he had, and my when I was six, my mother passed away. And then shortly after that, my father moved us to all kinds of different places. I literally, um, I have a book published called 10 Homes in 11 Years that talks all about my first 11 years of life. Hmm. And I, yeah, I lived in 10 different uh, places in 11 years. That's pretty and, tough going for a kid. Yeah, and some of them was uh, Van Horn, Texas, on the border of Mexico. And um, the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, do you have Indian heritage then? No, I don't. Um, my father was a chef, and he was um, given a job to cook at the college in the co- in on the reservation. Hmm. So we we were given housing there and. I was allowed to go to school with the, with the the uh, kids that were there, and yeah, that that was an interesting time too. Yeah, how long did that last for? I think that lasted a couple of years. Um, we eventually, me and my sister, eventually came back here to Massachusetts when I was eleven. Yeah, my father passed away when I was 11 years old. Oh, yeah, that's um, pretty rough, losing your mum at six and your dad at 11. 
Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, who looked after you then? Well, my aunt and uncle were my legal guardians, or my my parental figures, and my grandfather and my grandmother were my legal guardians. They lived mm. next door to us. Yeah. Yep. So, so your father died. Uh, was that while you were on the reservation? That was in Van Horn, Texas, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, he. Um, it's one of the only memories I have of back then. Was the day that he died. Um, hmm. I don't know why. We. The mind is weird. We remember some things that we would probably yeah. rather forget. But, um, yes. yeah, but I remember waking up that day and I, I looked at him. We, we were in a dirt poor apartment and me, me and him shared a bed outside of the bedroom was a um a kitchen and we had the coffee pot and we had the um refrigerator and he was making coffee and i just had like this really bad feeling come over me and so i um i Went up to him. I said, I want to stay home from school. Because I, I just had a really bad feeling something was going to happen today. I didn't want to go to school. Told me I had to go, so I went into the bathroom and I shoved my finger down my throat so I would throw up and tell him, you know, prove to him that I'm sick. You know, and um, he passed out a couple of times on me when we were during the day. Once in a store and once at home. When we were at home, I went to get my neighbor after he passed out the second time. And then we, we got him to the hospital. And then we, um, me and my father was, were there. He was laying on a gurney and I was there holding his hand and he passed away. Awesome. And then... That's pretty tough on an 11-year-old. Where was your sister? She was in school at the time. So I guess, yeah. the, I mean, <laughs> that, that, that brings in all sorts of problems. I mean, I, I guess you were the good person that broke the news to her. Actually, the, the police, I guess, broke the news to her. Um, I I honestly don't know where I went after that. And mm -hmm. I know that me and her ended up at her friend's house. And that's where we stayed until my grandfather sent my uncle down to come and get us in Texas from here in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember the transition. My, my sister told me that the police told her that, you know, do we have any family around here and that sort of thing, you know, the normal questions. And she just said that her best friend is the only, is like the closest family that she has around here in Van Horn, Texas. Mm. 
Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was really traumatized. My um, my sister even told me that for the first six months of being back home, I was a mute. I didn't talk. Hmm. And I totally forgot about that until I was writing that book, and she told me about that. Yeah. So bereavement is a is a funny old thing, and 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 the grieving process. Everybody it affects everybody differently. Um, yes. In fact, I've just done done a live stream for for a couple of weeks about bereavement and and different people's different journeys uh, mm-hmm. and how they've coped and got through it. So. Yep. So back, uh, you, you got back to Massachusetts, and uh, what happened? Did, did did they put you straight into school, or or did you have a couple of weeks out? How did that work out? That's a good question. <laughs> I'm assuming that we uh, we had a little bit of time out, but I I'm pretty sure we went back to school as quickly as we could because I had already lost a lot of school as it was moving around as much as I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I paid for that through my whole, uh, my whole uh, 12 years of academics. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I felt like I never really caught up and I, I gave up um, after a while. Because I never caught up, you know, and I, I, I began hanging out with the uh, less favorable crowd in high school, the um, the potheads, hmm. and then I was stoned every day when I went to school, <laughs> and throughout the whole academic day, you know, and then, hmm. um, and that that turned to other things, but. So I guess your schooling was pretty um, sporadic, to say the least. And uh, so, did did you actually manage to graduate? I did. Like I told my my son, I graduated with F's, <laughs> but I graduated because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm always on him about his schoolwork. Because I mean, yeah. if if you want it, you can you can do good, but. I didn't want it. Like I, I went to, I just graduated um, college a couple of years ago mm. at 48. You know, and I graduated top of my class. You know? I guess that's because you wanted it then. Yeah, um, yeah, because I wanted and it. And when you're in school, I mean, the, the people, I mean, people say that the, the, the school years are the best years of their lives, but that's not everybody. No, no, um, it's not. I mean, my my schooling was pretty lousy to say the least, and mm. uh, I mean, I was lucky to to get where I did when I did. So, I guess you're similar. So, so what what happened at the end of high school then? At the end of high school, I uh, well, during the last couple of years of high school, I started really drinking more and more. And um, getting into other drugs, uh, crack cocaine, hmm. and smoking pot like it was going out of style. 
And um, after high school, I just sort of existed for a couple of years. I, I went to what they call postgraduate. And um, that's like one year after high school, I, I went in for mechanics, mm-hmm. like an extra, extra year of school. And, um, but I, I just existed. I mean, I didn't learn much that I didn't already know. You know, mm-hmm. and then it came to the point where my aunt told me, you know, get out, get a job, but don't come back. Because I was in such a bad spot in my my own yeah. head, you know, and which was tough love that I needed at the time, you know. So I went out and I joined the military. I told her I I got a job and I'll be leaving in a month, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So, how did you get in the military? Did I? I know the British military, when you're applying, one of the things they do is, is test you for drugs. And if, you, if you, you've if you been taking drugs, then do one. You can't join. Yeah, they didn't test us right away. They tested us at what they call the MEP station. And that's where you take your, um, your IQ tests and all that other stuff. And that's mm. where they test you and... By that time, I, I had stayed away from it enough to pass the test. Yeah. 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 So so you managed to, to, to get into the Army. What branch of the Army did you join? Army Infantry. Uh, the cool. Mechanized Infantry. Yeah. So working on what we call 432s is the, what's the American version of the... I drove the Bradley um, Bradley fighting vehicle. Gotcha. Yeah. Because we would, I mean, yeah, back in my day, it was um, it was an American version of the the AF three four three two, which is uh, armored personnel carrier. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I, I guess I guess they moved on from that. Was it a one hundred and one? They called it in American. We still had the one hundred and one when I was in. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I mean that, that's, that's why I had to go out driving once. <laughs> Got a bit of that. I drove. I drove um, those once. I drove that. I drove the Abram. I drove the. My main vehicle was a Bradley, though. Mm. I thought Bradley was a tank. It is. All right, but armored infantry use it. Yeah, it's a mix between a tank and a personnel carrier. It, um, you have the driver, the yeah. um, the gunner, Rwanda. the BC, and then you have room for like five people in the back. Right. Yeah. So you can carry so, a squad with you. Yeah, our section we call it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. And you sort of drive into battle. Yep. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> so where where did you do your training? Where, where's where's the infantry training depot? Uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. Fort Benning. Yeah. That's hot and sticky, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, down south near Florida. Yeah, it's really um, hot. <laughs> yeah. Is yeah. that the only place that they train up the infantry? 
As far as, <clears throat> as far as I know, yes. Yep. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, so we we yeah, we we used to, um when I when I joined the army as an infantry soldier, we had different depots. So I, I went to the depot of the Queen's Division. Um oh, okay. there was the King's there was the King's Division, there was the uh, Prince of Wales Division, there was the Scottish Division, uh there was the Light Infantry Division. So they're all had their own um training depots. Now it's all done under one training depot up in Catterick in the north of England. And oh. all infantry you all, all infantry regiments go for it. But we we're set up slightly different. We have um regiments where you just I think their numbers that they for, for infantry units in it's just the infantry. You don't have like I was a Royal Anglian um so we have Royal Anglia Regiment, uh, and we, we have several battalions. Um, then you've got the Queen's Regiment, we've got the uh, Princess of Wales Royal Regiment, we've got the uh, Royal Regiment of Fusiliers, which is all Queen's Division. Then you've got the, the Highland, or the, the Scottish Division, which is split up into the, the Highlanders, the, the Argyll and Southern Highlanders. Uh, and yeah, so lots of different regiments, but as far as I'm aware, the Americans just have sort of numbers, sort of the fifth infantry, infantry battalion or something like that, is it? Yeah, yeah. Tenth yeah, like Ranger Regiment. <laughs> yeah, the fourth infantry. I was in fourth infantry. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, how long was your training for? I believe it was. Um, Four months altogether. Mm. I had the um, training and then the advanced infantry training. Mm. So you had the, uh, the driving. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so do they do the similar to we have? We have sort of the first six weeks is square bashing, uh, where they they knock you down and and they rebuild you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you go on to to the more more infantry skills and stuff like that. Um and then and then you go on to your sort of your trade training as it were. So yeah. the mechanized infantry, that's when you go off and do the specialist once you've passed out of basic training. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I hmm. um I I remember uh, a lot of the uh the training. It was it was weird because we um, there was a time where the like drill sergeants were allowed to strike the uh, people coming in. Yeah, you know? I don't think they was actually ever allowed to strike them. It was well, it was they, yeah. they, they turned a blind eye. I mean, right. there was there was there was two methods of punishment when I was in. Certainly in the early days, you could even get the sergeant's punishment, which is taking you around the back and give you give you one of them, or um, yeah. where you go on orders in front of the officer and they take money off you. So generally, yeah. you took one of them rather than have money taken. Yeah, off yeah, you. definitely, definitely, definitely. I'll take a punch. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, just... we yeah we we were. Right where they got a lot stricter with that, 
you know, not allowing them to yeah. strike a, a um, recruit. And it even got to the point where they didn't want us to go into hand-to-hand training. Like, I remember... Red battery infantry, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we, we... we were looking at the whole schedule like, oh, I can't wait to get into the hand-to-hand combat training. And then that came up, and a couple of days before, I, I remember my drill sergeant coming in fuming. And he said, you guys aren't doing the, the, um, the hand-to-hand. We're like, why aren't we doing the hand-to-hand? They don't want you to get hurt. What do you mean they don't want you to go? What What do you mean? <laughs> like half of us are going into the, half of us are going into Afghanistan or Iraq after we leave here, and you don't want us to get hurt. Really? <laughs> That's good preparation, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you could make that sort of thing up. I know. <laughs> I mean, I'm a writer, so I probably could, but I, I'm not. <laughs> so, um... <laughs> yeah, follow that one. <laughs> yeah, don't want you to go. Love it. So, when you finally passed out of training, then uh, you've gone on to your, your, your specialist training. Yeah. What was your first draft? What was your first posting? Um, Fort Carson, Colorado. That's different from uh, Fort Benning in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved Colorado. Colorado was one of the most beautiful states that we have. Uh, it's got like just the majestic mountains and everything. It's just an unbelievable place. Uh, forgive me, but mountains, armoured, don't really go together. Or are you on sort of a bit lower down on the plains? Well, when we were training, we were lower down on the plains. But we also, when we were marching and stuff like that, we, we did the mountains. Hmm. Yeah, and... Some of us, not all of us, were uh, um, mechanized. Like, uh, out of 20, 30 people, maybe 10 of them were mechanized. The rest of them were Bravo, which is a foot soldier. You know, so they were still training in the traditional infantry way. Hmm. So, so you, you had your 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 APCs, your armored personnel carriers, and all that in, in there, um, but most of it was sort of normal, what we call infantry skills, which is right. for you know, I mean, uh, PBIs we call them, poor bloody infantry. Yes, <laughs> do, do a lot like of foot that. slogging, <laughs> and 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 occasionally. If you're lucky to get a jump in the back of a a, a truck, <laughs> takes right. a, takes a strain off your poor old feet. Right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
I, I was actually my uh, my XO's uh, driver. I was my XO's and I was my CO's at different times. Mm. But um, they didn't go out on every mission, every training mission, or so. There was a lot of times where I got attached to one of the uh, the foot soldiers' um, squads. So yeah, I did a lot of the the footwork too. Mm. Yeah. So how long was you there for? Was that the Fourth Infantry Battalion then? Yeah, the Fourth Infantry Division. Um, I was there for my whole time, uh, ninety three to ninety six. While I was there, I uh, was went to Cuba for six months, where we guarded um, Cuban and Haitian camps. They were trying to get over to the U.S., and we couldn't allow them to just walk on to our shores. So we put them into uh, these camps to transition them into uh, wherever wherever they were going to go next. I mm. It was above me. I didn't know where they were going to go. But um, we, I also went to uh, the border of Mexico. So that was like returning after all those years in a way. Um, mm. Yeah, it was actually near Van Horn too where we went. But um, I... We were guarding the border of Mexico against uh, anybody coming over from you know, Mexico illegally. Yeah, I, I thought that was the the role of the uh, the the border police. It is, but I th- in '95, I think they, or maybe it's something that they always do. But in '95, we were there helping them out. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if they always have the infantry there, but uh, yeah, at that point we were helping them out with that. So, how long were you in the Fourth Infantry Division then? Uh, three years. I was in for um, ninety-three to ninety-six. And, and what happened in ninety-six? Did, did you get posted somewhere else to a different division or? I ets which was, I, I got out on an honorable discharge. All right, so you, you served your time, basically. Yes, yep, yep. Where did you go after you left the military? Back home to uh, Massachusetts, to Worcester, Massachusetts. And I worked uh, odd jobs for a little while. And then I um, I fell into a really dark depression a couple of years after I was out of um, the military. My, what happened was my grandfather, who was my legal guardian, and my uncle, who was my father figure, passed away a month apart due to cancer. And that was like losing my father all over again. Yeah, that's pretty 
I mean, just that aside, I mean, that's that's got to give you some worries whether you're going to go down the same route um, because yeah. I guess that's in the family then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we entitled to um, use the VA. Well, and at that time, was I, any, didn't, I didn't was even there know any about support? the VA. I didn't even know about the VA at that time. Um, it, my depression got so bad, though, that I I tried uh, taking my own life. You know, I I, um, I took a bottle of sleeping pills one night and went to sleep. And my, my friends found me and found the bottle. And I was cutting on myself just to feel something other than what I was feeling, I guess. And I carved the words F.U. World into my arm. Hmm. And they found me and they rushed they called an ambulance and I got rushed to the local hospital and then the local hospital sent me to the VA and that's where I found the VA Hmm. and then after that I was homeless for a little while and I um, I ended up being in uh veteran shelters and VA shelters for about five years. But I, I, I call that time my crucible because I, um, it woke me up because a lot of times I felt like I, like the world owed me throughout life. You know, for the loss of my mother and my father and everything that I went through. And then I seen a bunch of other veterans suffering and going through hell, just like I was. You know, and that that really woke me up. You know, like, I'm not the only one suffering here. I need to get off my, get off my butt and, you know, help some of these people out, too, because... You know, we all need help. You know, mm. and then I um I found out that I had uh, PTSD, and I've had it since I was six years old, and that's um that's, that was huge. You're losing your mother, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yep, and that was actually huge for me. Because, like I tell people now in the work that I do, I tell people that if you know what's going on with you, then you can combat it. You know, you you can begin to heal and fix yourself. Mm. You know, because that's, that's how I did it. You know, I didn't know what was going on with me all those years until I found out, hey, I have something called PTSD. And now that I know that, I've written I've written books on the subject. You know, I've I've learned that much about it. I mean, it's really it's it, it, people get the wrong or, or or don't understand PTSD. Yes, a lot of people think that it's it's just military that are affected when they're in combat and stuff like that. 
But it, it's not. It, it, it can be any traumatic incident that has an effect on on the individual. Exactly. It could be it, it could be somebody just somebody witnessing a road traffic accident, and years later yeah. th- that develops into post traumatic stress. Um, the British military uh, have, have started to use a thing called trim. So, but particularly if you're in combat, you you you, you get a, a traumatic incident. Sort of seventy two hours after the incident, a, a team comes in, they assess everybody, they put them into different categories, uh, work out who needs individual or a group or um, just a, a general. Um, briefing and then three or four weeks later they come back to see how people are doing and if if any time somebody's struggling with it then they'll signpost them on to specialist treatment and then they'll come back in again at the three month point and uh, if, if people are okay then they'll just get on with it if they're still struggling then they'll get additional help so that's the way that we've been dealing with it in the British military. Um, wow. But that has also been rolling out now across the the emergency services, hospitals, anybody that, that, that is in an environment where they they may come into contact with, with a traumatic incident and trying to educate people for it. That's mind-blowing. Because I, I mm. wish we had that in our military. Because as far as I know, we don't. Mm. You know, and, and, and you guys, I've worked with Americans um, in the past when I was, I, I mean, I've done a, a dozen operational tours. I mean, I, I did three tours of Afghanistan. I did a tour of Iraq. I did Kosovo. I did Macedonia. I did Northern Ireland. Uh, and then in the earlier days, where I mean, you could could possibly term Germany um, and during the Cold War as operational tours. I mean, we were in Berlin, and we were literally, I mean, we were cannon fodder. We within sort of twelve hours, they would have wiped us out. But um, whether that's a reality or not is something else. But still, yeah. kind of an operational tour. But although we we're having great fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Berlin was awesome. Trust me. Mm. Um, yeah, so this has been developed over the over several years. I mean, the Royal Marines were doing it a long time ago. British Army have been doing it for the last oh, twenty years now, um, and it's it's all part of your normal everyday training. There's also other courses, suicide awareness courses that we do, um, care for the carers type course looking after yourself basically and identifying in yourself and in others that are starting to struggle so they are doing a lot for it nowadays whereas back in the old days it was just yeah we'll have one of these oh what's that oh that's a man uphill um that, that that attitude has gone um i mean fortunately i mean but there you go that's the way that we've been dealing with it. And I guess hmm. they don't do that in America or haven't done. As far as I know, we we deal more with it after the fact. 
you know, like after the military, um, that's where the VA comes into play and all that. But um, I used to run a PTSD group in a veteran shelter near here. And yeah, people have told me that there's no, not really any talk about it within mm. the military itself. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it has, and it is being destigmatized in the British military. I mean, something that we've been working on for, for a lot of years. I mean, there is still that stigma uh, attached to, to, to a mental health issue. But yes. when you, when you analyze it, everybody at some stage will have a problem. Um, oh, yeah with their mental health and and it should be something that's dealt with and something that should be talked about and destigmatized and everybody should feel comfortable talking about how they feel and oh, yeah. they're, they're particularly if, if they're, they're feeling depressed and 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 something's bothering them um and if you're able to talk to people sometimes that's all it needs to to help is, is use two of these on one of those in that proportion and, and, and just sit and listen to somebody's problem. And exactly. that can be a, a massive help. And understand yeah. that it's not a stigma. It's, it's, it's like suicide. I mean, suicide shouldn't be tabooed. It shouldn't be a stigma because it, it, it is a problem and it's, it's a mental health problem. Somebody's going through some, some, some pain, uh, that they're trying to stop, and and sometimes all it'll take is somebody to sit down and have a listen to them, and so yeah. they can get it off their chest, and and and, and just by doing that, they generally see that that there's something better. Exactly. I mean, I I tell people in every single podcast that I've been on, and I've been on a lot this year alone, but um. My, my suicide attempt was like 20 years ago. And now my, my son is 10 years old. And his sister is 12, who I, I, I'm not in a relationship with their mother anymore, but I still consider my daughter. You know, mm-hmm. And if I was successful back then, my kid wouldn't be here. It's simple yeah. math, you know? <clears throat> And, like, I wouldn't be on your podcast. I wouldn't be a seven-time mm-hmm. author. I wouldn't, you know, the list goes on and on. You can, there's no telling what you can do after the hardest times of your life. Yeah. If you walk through that fire, you will find peace on the other side. You know, you just got to be able to walk through that fire. You know, I've, mm. I've, I've lost many friends to suicide. I've lost, I, when I was in college, there was, there was a there was a girl younger, like probably 18 to 20 that, um, sat in the back of the class. One day she wasn't there and the, um, I get teared up when I even think about this, but the professor was like, uh, before we start, I got to tell you guys something. Um, 
You guys know the girl that sat in the back of the class. She unfortunately took her own life this weekend. Hmm. And I was just like, why? You know, then it's just, I just think about it. Like, I, I wish I could just go on like a global, you know, horn and just yell out, hold on, you know, just hold on one one more day because you, your life can be so much better if you just wait. You know, don't yeah. let the bad times get to you. Just it gets all of us. I mean, I, I just went through one of my, one of my best friends in this life just passed away from cancer hmm. just last month. And I went through a, a, a hard time myself. I had to take a few days off from work because I was, I was overwhelmed with everything, you know, but yeah, you know, take the time off, get the help talk to someone that will listen like you said i've i've gone through countless trainings you know peer support trainings and a lot of it is just sitting there and listening to the person you know not opening your mouth just listening to the person and when they're done you know just if you have something to say to them that is going to encourage them in the right way, then tell them, you know, but there's no magic pill. No, you know, just like in addiction recovery, there's no one set way of addiction recovery. You know, there's not, there's just, everyone, everyone's got to find their own path. Mm. Yeah. And it just takes somebody to to listen. Nine yeah. times out of ten, I mean, unfortunately, the, the the determined person that's going to take their own life, you generally won't know about. They'll that they'll be successful the first time they try it. The person that that isn't overly committed about doing it, that is a cry for help, and that's the people that we can help. But we can also help. The determined you know, to make sure that, that they know that there's people there that care about them, and that's right. sometimes it, it's all it takes. And and as long as they know that that you're there to listen when they're going for a hard time, uh, and if somebody asks for that sort of help, don't mug them off. Give them that time. Doesn't matter what else is going on in the world. If you if you just give them that time to to open up, to talk, and, and for you to listen, that's all it takes sometimes to save somebody's life. Mm. And I think if if we can get that message out, um, and I'm driving that message forward with um, my live stream. Um, then, then we can save. If we can just save one life, it's 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 better than oh, not. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, Charles, where do you go from here? I mean, you, you've written half a dozen books. Yeah, I've um, 
Right now, I'm in the midst of republishing some of my books. I, I have ideas for different covers and to add information into the books that I've already published. So I, I, I am going to do that. Um, and uh, I am going to be coming out with a new book called Blood on Blood, which is, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to Bon Jovi, but um, it's a song by Bon Jovi, Blood on Blood. It's about him and his childhood friends. And this is about me and my childhood friends, like the one that I was just talking about that passed away. Hmm. But um, how they saved my life because back when uh, my after my father died I really you know I, I pushed every parental figure in my life away you know I didn't I didn't want anybody else in my life to take his place or take my mother's place so that's that was just my frame of thought you know mm -hmm. like they were gonna try and take their place so I I gravitated towards my friends they became my family Mm. You know, and they they saved my life at that time. You know, I might have went into drinking and stuff that you know teenagers and do, but um, you know they 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 really helped me out. And uh, one thing that I'm doing now is I'm working for a place called. Um, aware recovery care and what aware recovery care is is we meet people where they're at we meet people in their homes we meet people um you know at dunkin donuts wherever they want to meet and talk with us we have the client for an entire year where um i've had hundreds of clients in detoxes <clears throat> and CSSs and all that. And I never felt like I had enough time with them. Mm. You know, now I feel like I have more than enough time with them to get them going in the right direction for their recovery. You know, so aware of recovery care is just an amazing place for people that are listening to it. And, and um, Massachusetts and Maine, Florida, Connecticut, we're in some of those other states too, Ohio. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, these days I'm, I'm just doing the best I can to help out as many people as I can. Well, you're doing a great job. Thank you, Tim. And so and, we are. And, and 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 something that 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 needs doing, which is the main thing. Yeah, definitely. Like, mm. I don't know how the. Um, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, where can people get hold of your books? Where can get people um, do anything to help? Um, LifelongExperience.net is where you can find all my books and everything that I'm I'm mm -hmm. about. They're all on there. Um, 
right? They have, they're on multiple different platforms, audiobook, all that. So. Brilliant. Then Thank we'll you. put out, put all those links down in the description. Thank you. So Charles, um, it's, it's been an amazing story and I just thank you for sharing. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. I feel like I've been waiting a while to be on here with you. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's we good to, to come <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, worth waiting for. Definitely, definitely, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you, definitely. The Tim Hill Podcasts Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.